It's Tuesday, October 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law the Fair Pay to Play Act on Monday, a first-in-the-nation law that will make it easier for college athletes to profit from their own name, image, and likeness. The law doesn't go into effect until 2023, but it could be a major problem for the NCAA. Steve Berkowitz, reporter for USA Today Sports, joins us with more. Next, we got one step closer to our self-driving car future, but there were some hiccups. Tesla released a new feature to some of its customers called Smart Summon, which would enable the car to leave a parking spot and navigate around obstacles to pick up its owner. The problem is that it didn't work out too well and led to some fender benders. Andrew Hawkins, transportation reporter at The Verge, joins us for What Went Wrong. Finally, America's first licensed cannabis restaurant is now open to the public. Lowell Farms, a cannabis cafe, lets you eat a meal while smoking marijuana or consuming edibles. Bud tenders will find the right pairing of weed to match your food, or you can bring your own for a tokage fee. Jen Harris, senior writer for the LA Times food section, joins us for what to expect. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's going to initiate dozens of other states to introduce similar legislation, and it's going to change college sports for the better by having now the interests, finally, of the athletes on par with the interests of the institutions. Now we're rebalancing that power arrangement. Joining us now is Steve Berkowitz, reporter at USA Today Sports. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thanks a lot for having me on. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed into law the Fair Pay to Play Act, which has to do a lot with college athletes and basically says that they can now make money off of their names, their image, and their likenesses, just like professional sports players. This runs afoul of what the NCAA wanted to do. This doesn't go into effect until 2023. Gives a lot of time for lawsuits. <laughs> I mean, there's going to be a lot of stuff that happens because of this. Steve, tell us exactly what the law does, and then we'll get into all sorts of other stuff about it. Well, I think you captured it pretty well. I mean, what it does is it gives the opportunity for athletes to make money off their name, image, and likeness in ways that are not currently allowed by NCAA rules. The NCAA doesn't forbid athletes from currently making money off their name, image, and likeness, but they have to do it in a very limited, narrow way in which they can't really mention or leverage their identities as college athletes. So they could do it just on their own names, but they couldn't do it in a way that sort of identifies themselves as being players for their particular teams. This is a big difference. Plus, it allows the prospector athletes to have agent-type representation, particularly if they're trying to work out these kinds of deals. Now, the NCAA, which is the governing body for college athletes, they are not happy about this, but they also do acknowledge that it is something that they have to address. I think they have a committee studying the issue where they were going to have a report released sometime in October, seeing how they can modernize their, their rules regarding this, but they are not happy with the law in its present form. That's true. I think that the NCAA does not want to have this imposed upon them. They want and they believe they have the legal right to govern themselves and make their own rules. And there's also concern within the association about the prospect of this being dealt with on a state-by-state-by-state -state -state basis, which would conceivably give them sort of this crazy quilt of individual state regulations. There are legislative proposals in other states 
while they're modeled on California's legislation, each go about it in a little bit different way. If you're trying to be a national association, that creates all kinds of problems for you. They could even eliminate some of the California schools from participating with other NCAA schools. So they wouldn't be able to play in the same games together or be part of the same tournaments and things. That's sort of the threat, or as the NCAA would say it, that's the reality, that if they're playing under different rules than the rest of the schools, then they would not be eligible for NCAA championships. There have also been some athletics directors at schools outside of California who are saying that they would be reluctant to schedule games against schools in the state of California for after the effective date of the legislation because they have no idea what those schools' status would be with the NCAA and those schools might be advantaged in their recruiting and so on. So, you know, and again, if this starts to seep into other states, though, that becomes uh, problematic. And the other thing to keep in mind is there is a piece of legislation in Congress that would have the same effect as the law now in California. That bill was proposed by a congressman from North Carolina. It was referred to the House Ways and Means Committee, and it's been sitting there ever since. But there is one there that would sort of go at this on a national basis. And that really seems where the trajectory is going on this. Governor Gavin Newsom signed this bill on uninterrupted the shop with LeBron James. And he even mentioned it then and there. He said, but this is going to take root in other states. And even that's already started to come out. South Carolina, I think, said that they're working on legislation similar to this. Just today, a bill went into the hopper in the Florida House of Representatives. So, I mean, yeah. you know, and, and even in, as Gavin Newsom was doing this, there's a new state coming in. Part of the discussion is that the athletes are making so much money for the schools and the programs themselves and the athletes don't get anything in compensation from it. Well, okay, I got to stop you there. The athletes get compensated, okay? Whether or not the athletes are sufficiently compensated, right, okay. particularly in the revenue-generating sports, that's a different discussion. But if you speak to any individual who goes through college and comes out with debt, try telling them that college athletes, particularly those who are on full scholarship, right, yeah. aren't getting paid, and they'll tell you something different. And athletes do get benefits over and above their scholarships. And there's a laundry list of benefits that they get. Now, are those cash benefits? In some cases, they are. Now, is that a square deal for athletes in football who are helping their schools generate tens or even over $100 million a year in revenue? That's a different question. The uh, Pac-12 conference had a, an interesting take on this. They say that this is going to lead to the professionalization of college sports. There's going to be a lot of unintended consequences because of this. What is your thought on that side of it? There are people who would say it's not the professionalization of college sports. It's actually the restoration of a right that belongs to every individual, which is the right to make what they can off their name, image, and likeness, right. just the same way as any other student is able to do that. To me, that's sort of a two-sided coin. In terms of the unintended consequences. I think what PAC-12 is getting at is the prospect of the disruption in their conference if California schools were to be eliminated from contention for NCAA championships or it becomes problematic for them from a scheduling perspective because you have four schools in the PAC-12 in the state of California and you have the remainder of the conference that's outside the state of California. And you have other conferences that are similarly situated, the Mountain West, and you know, they have these same kinds of problems where you'd have schools potentially playing by different sets of rules. Steve Berkowitz, reporter at USA Today Sports. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks again for having me on. 
as we see more and more vehicles hit the road with a lot more of these sort of smart features, whether it's sort of enhanced cruise control style features like autopilot, like Tesla has with autopilot and a number of other car companies have as well, or some of these more gimmicky type features like smart summons, I think you're going to see something of a collision between those type of vehicles and the majority of vehicles which are on the road today. Joining us now is Andrew Hawkins, transportation reporter at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Yeah, my pleasure. We're getting a little peek into the future of self-driving cars. Tesla just rolled out a new feature to their customers for those who purchase the full self-driving option on their car. It's a feature called Smart Summon, and it's actually a really neat thing. You can basically summon your car from the parking lot to come and pick you up where you are. On their website, this is how they describe it. Your car will navigate more complex environments and parking spaces, maneuvering around objects as necessary to come find you in a parking lot. So this update was rolled out this past weekend. Obviously, Tesla drivers are playing around with it. Andrew, tell us what's happened since. A bunch of videos were uploaded over the weekend of people using this new feature that said summon their vehicles to them. It doesn't have to be anyone behind the wheel. It doesn't have to be anyone in the car. And it doesn't seem like it was going so great for a number of people. There was a few close near collisions. One person said that they got some front bumper damage when their car collided with another car that was uh, reversing out of a parking spot. Somebody tweeted a photo of a Tesla Model 3 with a pretty damaged fender saying that their car ran into the side of their garage. These are all just sort of like a snapshot of some of the reactions that we've seen so far over the weekend, but clearly not the kind of stuff that Tesla probably wants out there in the public. I would imagine. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of videos. My, I think my favorite video so far is in a Walmart parking lot and the person is in line of sight. They're recording it and everything. And the maneuver isn't very difficult. You just got to pull out and kind of make a left turn and you're pretty much there to your owner. But the car has such a hard time and it keeps going forward and reversing and going forward and reversing. And then a truck comes to try to turn into that lane and kind of makes things a little more complicated. And you can see the frustration in the truck driver. And that's, to me, is kind of the funniest video of all of this, is that it is a very simple maneuver and the car still could not handle it. It was pretty hilarious, too, watching the guy who was filming it. You could just hear his frustration uh, <laughs> behind, the, behind the phone, just being like, come on, man, come on, get over here. So there might be a few bugs in the system. I think one of the advantages of having a Tesla is that if Tesla sees that there's any sort of way that they can improve their software, that can get rolled out pretty quickly via their over-the-air software update capability. So we haven't heard back from Tesla as to what their reaction is to any of these videos, but it is possible that the company is sort of scrambling to come up with some sort of fix that might be rolled out to Tesla owners in the weeks ahead. This is another example of real-world complications that arise from Tesla's willingness to beta test these features using customers. Obviously, Tesla has been working on this for a long time and testing on their own, but it just rolls out in an update like this and it's on the customer to pretty much play around with it to see how well it would work in their everyday situation. And it does seem with some of these glitches that have been happening, maybe there wasn't enough testing done or maybe it needs to be developed more before you roll something out like this to customers. As a company, Tesla really has a lot of trust in their customers. It's really kind of amazing. I think you see a lot of other companies, especially car companies, try to anticipate all the worst things that people can do with their products and try to anticipate some of that stuff and make sure that there's enough 
protections and safeguards in their products to prevent some of those things from happening. Tesla, on the other hand, really prides itself on being at the forefront of the technology. And at the same time, they end up putting some of this tech in the hands of people, maybe when it's not quite ready yet. In this case, it doesn't seem like anyone's really misusing Smart Summon quite yet, although there was one video on YouTube where a guy was trying to test it out by sort of walking in front of the car as it was moving autonomously. So maybe that's not the best way to test this out by putting your own body in harm's way. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, it is an indication that Tesla likes to keep this sort of position that it has in the market by being sort of a first driver in a lot of this tech. And that means getting a lot of unfinished products into the hands of customers. A lot of other car companies are putting a lot more technology into their cars, driving assisting programs, things like that. What is the future going to be as all of these cars are in different stages of their technology? I think it's really going to be not just complicated, but possibly even chaotic. I think what we're going to have as we see more and more vehicles hit the road with a lot more of these sort of smart features, whether it's sort of enhanced cruise control style features like autopilot, like Tesla has with autopilot and a number of other car companies have as well, or some of these more gimmicky type features like smart summons, I think you're going to see something of a collision between those type of vehicles and the majority of vehicles which are on the road today, which you could categorize as dumb vehicles, I suppose, cars that don't have quite as many sensors and as much advanced software or any sort of artificial intelligence in them as some of these Teslas and other vehicles. So it's going to be a messy overlap because especially if this future comes to pass that a lot of experts and people involved in the technology have been insisting for years that eventually every car on the road will be a self-driving car, especially when we see how much safer they are and how much they do to help reduce the number of car collisions that take place and the number of fatal accidents and crashes. If that's the future that comes to pass, it's going to take a long time for us to sort of phase out all of these dumb cars and how the dumb cars interact with the smart cars, (laughs) I think. That's where the chaos is going to come from. Andrew Hawkins, transportation reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. You'll come in, you'll be greeted by what they're calling a flower host, also known as a bud tender. This person is going to kind of be your cannabis Sherpa. You know, they'll ask you what your experience has been with cannabis, if you smoked a ton, if you've never smoked before. And then in addition to your flower host, you'll also have like a regular server. Joining us now is Jen Harris, senior writer at the LA Times food section. Thanks for joining us, Jen. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about Lowell Farms, a cannabis cafe. It is now open to the public. It's a first in the industry, in the restaurant industry. It's the first licensed cannabis consumption lounge and restaurant. Diners can have a meal. They can smoke cannabis. They can eat cannabis-infused edibles on the premises. There are a few little rules behind it. So, Jen, help us uh, give us a picture of what this place is like and what's going to be when it's full steam ahead. So like you said, this is the first of its kind. So if you're imagining something like a giant smoky room, which is what I was imagining, (laughs) full of, you know, like bowls of weed and couches and just people smoking all over the place, there would definitely be a ton of weed in there, but it's set up like a full functioning regular restaurant where you'll come in, you'll be greeted by what they're calling a flower host, also known as a bud tender. This person is going to kind of be your cannabis Sherpa. You know, they'll ask you what your experience has been with cannabis, if you smoked a ton, if you've never smoked before. And then in addition to your flower host, you'll also have like a regular server who will take your food order because, of course, you can actually order like a regular lunch and dinner there as well. 
Now, one of the original plans was to have marijuana-infused food there, but there is a lot of state and federal laws that really didn't allow this to work just yet. Maybe in the future things could change, but for now, you order food and your cannabis separately. You would even get two bills for this. And if you buy cannabis, you would only be able to pay cash for that stuff. So yeah, you order it separately. Right now you can get a food and bud pairing where they will try to match up the dishes you're going to have with certain strains of whatever you're going to be smoking or vaping. But yeah, it it is separate. And what kind of food are they going to have there? A lot of snacks, I'm assuming. I, I know the chef Andrea Drummer is going through a lot of effort to as you said, pair things, you know, a lot of people get hungry and get the munchies after they get yeah. high. So, so she, she's really making that extra effort to make those pairings. Uh, I, I looked at a couple of things. It seems like a lot of rich stuff, things that you would really find super tasty once you've consumed the marijuana. I think there are certain things uh, that are expected, like she's doing, you know, mac and cheese bites and nachos, but she's also trying to do kind of fancier, larger format entrees, like a miso glazed pork belly. She's making all her own pickles in-house. So it's definitely like a chefy farm-to-table menu, but ideally you'd pair those things with your cannabis. I want to go back to a little thing you mentioned earlier. You talked about the notion of a smoke-filled room. They actually have this really top-of-the-line ventilation system that sucks up all the air, all the smoke and filters it so that you don't really get any of that in the restaurant or even in for the neighboring businesses. This is going to be in West Hollywood, California, and there's a lot of businesses right next to it. So that's a big important distinction that, you know, you're not going to have this big smoke-filled room. So I spoke with restaurant director Kevin Brady, who was a big part of making sure that they implemented a special air filtration system so that the room was never smoky. He looked into a lot of, you know, Korean barbecue places as well, just trying to find the right system. So they actually have the special filtration system inside and then outside. There are these giant, like, things that look like light fixtures that I do think offer lighting, but those also act as a filtration system so that when you're outside, it's not just smoke billowing all over the patio and the neighbors ideally wouldn't be able to see it or smell it as well. Give us a quick rundown of some of the other things that you will be able to do and won't be able to do, because as we mentioned, there's a lot of rules surrounding this. This is the first time a business is really doing this, the kind of restaurant and smoking lounge together. So they're they're taking a lot of pains to really get it right. So what are some of the things you can and cannot do there? A lot of this is they have the license in place if you follow these rules. So let's see, you can come in if you're 21 or older, so you must be 21. You can smoke joints and vape both inside the dining room and on the side patio. You can consume edibles. One thing I found interesting was that you can smoke or consume edibles you bring from home. You just pay a small tokage fee, kind of similar to a corkage fee with wine. You can use your own bongs or pipes, or you can rent tools from the restaurant. Because of the way the licensing works, once they secure a liquor license, which is they have like a special beer and wine license, you'll be able to drink beer and wine just on the front patio, but you won't be able to smoke there just on the side patio or inside. You cannot take unfinished products home. So say you have a joint and you don't happen to finish it, you've got to leave it there. And they don't have a hard and fast ounce limit of how much you're able to smoke or consume, but the flower host and the security will be monitoring people to make sure that everyone's having fun and at a good point. Jen Harris, senior writer at the LA Times food section. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.